after you've gone and left me crying, baby. After you've gone, there's no denying you'll feel blue. Ba 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 ba. You'll feel sad. Come on, bring it up. You're gonna miss the greatest man that you've done ever had, baby. There'll come a time, and don't you forget it. There'll come a time when you'll regret it. Singing up a storm that Friday night. That's because there's a sense of unbelievable, fantastic relief. We've made the weekend again. Holy smokes! By George, we've made it all the way. You know, I've I've threatened, uh, very seriously threatened. I'm, I'm down there waiting. You know, I'm I'm out in the bullpen. Run it back and you reset that in there, will you? Uh, if you don't want to reset that, you can reset China Boy. China, China, Chinatown. Where the lights are low, da 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 da. China, 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 Chinatown. <laughs> well, I'm I'm uh, pacing back and forth out there, and uh, I I thought for a minute, you know, just just a little odd moment there, just went through my mind. I thought maybe maybe I ought to do it. Maybe I ought to do a show about great burpers that I've known in the past. You know, there are some people who are truly heroic in our world that just don't get the kind of credit that they deserve. I'm talking about people with true folk talent. And I'm talking about that kind of folk talent. There are many that are chosen, but few that actually arrive. Many, we all have, we all have the basic equipment necessary for this kind of thing. But there are just a few people who have made that little tiny transition for mediocrity and ordinariness to full greatness. And I thought about that. I think, huh? I've known one or two in my time. I mean, really, fan- now, don't, don't, don't accuse me of being in ill taste. If you do think this, then I can only say that life itself is in ill taste. Uh, some of the great uh, classic writers of the past... Uh, Fielding, for example, dealing with Tom Jones. I'm talking about the book, not about Albert Finney. I'm talking about Tom Jones. Uh, <laughs> he dealt with a great area of, of the kind of lust and the kind of swinging 
and the kind of uh, devouring of life that had to do with people who uh, indulged themselves in talent of one kind or another. You know, I, I, I can think of about... Hey, listen, fellas, the show's in here. I can think of about at least five... No, she just works here. So afterwards, I'll explain it to you who she is, and you can meet her, okay? All right, fine. That's why we don't have people in here. You see, they get all hung up on the scenery and all that, and they forget what we're doing here. But after after a time... No, seriously, after a time, I think that we've got to come around... Because this, this is the day and age of pop art. Now, what really is pop art? Pop art is kind of slob art. It's the kind of art that anybody can do. Most people can sort of half-bakedly cartoon. You know, you sit there with a napkin and you draw funny faces. You're, you're not too far removed from the guy who did uh, Mutt and Jeff. That's really what pop art is. And, and most of the stuff which we used to call talent, you know, like singing... Uh, I mean, real singing. I'm talking about Caruso and the Metropolitan Opera... And uh, the, the the great singing, the 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 kind of singing which which uh, was singing singing, you know, the guy standing up on a paper mountain with a helmet on his head and holding a shield, and yelling about the gods or the or the, the Rhine maidens or something. This this is the kind of stuff that was so far away from pop, you know, from pop. It just didn't uh, had no contact. You can only sit there with your mouth hanging open. And what is pop? We're we're working into the world of pop now, pop art. Uh, every guy that gets himself an 8mm camera for Christmas is now a movie maker. Calls himself a great director or a great, a great movie. Andy Warhol, the whole scene, is just guys, you give them a camera, they just take a picture of the wall for four hours, and it's a great movie maker, that's all. Uh, Self-proclaimed. Uh, and pop art really is the art of pop. It's the art that anybody can do. Now, I can think of a few things that we all do, that have not yet been put into the realm of art. And I can foresee the day when they will become Olympic events. I can think of a half a dozen Olympic events. After all, what is it that America is so hung on, or in fact the entire world is hung on right now, this three-letter word here? I can see the day when it's an Olympic event. They'll have trials, eliminations, and they'll have... Uh, They'll have, uh, it'll come down to the final five or six guys will be sent over, the team, the great team. There'll be a team of chicks and there'll be a team of guys. And they'll go to, they'll represent us at Helsinki. And uh, <laughs> they're used to be, speaking of that, you know, that reminds me of something. How many of you, talking about in things, I hate to, I hate to bring up in things, but in the radio industry, uh, you haven't been in it long enough, Matt, to know this, but in the radio industry, there have been at least a half a dozen taped shows or uh, records, LPs, that were in within the radio industry. Uh, and they were, uh, they were kind of standard jokes. Everybody in the radio industry knew about them. And it was a common sort of language. You know how, how people who go to see stand-up comics, and they've seen so many stand-up comics in the Catskills, that they know all the jokes. And they laugh just as soon as Manny Manny comes out on the stage. They start laughing. See, they, they, he doesn't have to tell the jokes anymore. He just comes out and he says, You remember the one about the tailor? <laughs> then they laugh. They hit each other and they yell and holler and they drink their scotch. And, and It's an in-language. It's, it's really a language that they all know. Well, within the radio industry, there are several. How many of you know what record was uh, starred a great character of underground literature called Lord Windesmere. 
I will award the Brass Fig Leggy with Bronze Oak Leaf Palm, who anyone, anyone who knows what fantastic sporting event he was a... Her- no, 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 come on, you're out. A- a- what fantastic event that he was uh, a, not only a star in, but an international champion in, and who was the up-and-coming challenger that he bested in this fantastic contest. Magnificent. I'd love to play that record tonight on the show. It would, uh, I'll tell you, uh, radio would come of age. It would also age considerably. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> we will award the Brass Big League to anyone who can tell me then uh, what was the fantastic? Well, what was the event to begin with that Lord Windesmere was uh, was great in? And and furthermore, uh, who was the up and coming challenger whom he bested? And what did the challenger train on? The challenger trained on a specific thing. Okay. Well, I'll. Uh, I've often thought about this. One of the greatest performers I ever knew. In this field, can you please give me the second cut there? Now, here we go now, see? See, this this is part of our life where we are, in a very real sense, friends, gather around there. Uh, this is a part of our life where we are really uh, purely involved in, the, let's say, the natural buffoon that is in all of us. The knobby knees, the uh, funny ears that stick out. The palms that have a tendency to sweat at uh, inopportune moments. Uh, the problem of the... Bring it up there just a little bit there. The problem of the underwear that creeps up when it shouldn't creep up. Or the underwear that goes down when it shouldn't go down. In fact, I'll never forget the time I had a pair of jockey shorts that had uh, a bad rubber band, you know, around the side, the top there. It gave out on me at a very crucial moment, and I did an entire concert down around the knees there. These are things which uh, are hardly ever reported as great, discouraging moments in the world of art. It's all part of P.O.P., Pop, the world of us, you and me. They, I eventually believe they'll have great nose-blowing contests. Guys that can be heard all the way in Staten Island, they can really honk it up. Ooh! That kind, you know. That double, triple, threeper. That kind of honky. Then there will be a contest for guys that can knuckle crack. You know, pow, 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 pow. These are the true art forms that we all know. And then there are guys that can wiggle their ears. I have a brother, Matt. Someday I'm going to have him as a guest down on my Limelight show. You won't believe it when he comes in. He can wiggle his ears a good half inch in a circular motion and in opposite directions, each one, and separately. Pop. (laughs) Speaking of pop art, this is WOR AM and FM New York. And you got that little money button there? Hit it there, hit it, hit it there. Let's get these beer drinkers going here. Come on, let's just bring it up there. Miller Miller Highlight and Pop and Pour Cans. Very good. Distinctive Miller Highlight in Pop and Pour Cans. (laughs) <laughs> you found out about old Lord Windesmere, didn't you? Just pop and pour <laughs> Miller Highlight, the champagne of bottled beer. English no champagne. No needed. And inside every can, enjoy the hearty ba, ba, and light goodness ba, 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 ba. of Miller Highlight, <laughs> brewed from a century-old recipe only in Milwaukee. 
Miller High Life always gives you that perfect taste in beer every time. Always a bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Hey, don't question Now Miller, you can boy. enjoy refreshing Miller High Life in pop and pour cans. Don't sit there and argue with that can. You just drink. Pop and pour Miller High Life. Always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Now in pop and pour cans. All right, Dad, you got another one in there? All right, let's go. Free and easy. Holy smokes, what's That's this? That's my style. That's the stylish singing of Mr. Show Business, the world's greatest entertainer, Sammy Davis Jr. Mr. Show Business. Once in a lifetime. Loud. And for the first time in his <laughs> thrilling career, Sammy stars in his own full-hour television special. It's the swinging world of Sammy Davis Jr. with Billy Daniels, oh boy, is that a beautiful new Broadway oh, wow. star Lola Falana, oh, and a special guest star Peter Lawford. Oh, Wherever we go, have you ever had the feeling that most of the stuff that's big in the world is about 30 years out of date? Together. You know, tap it's a great hour with Sammy Davis Jr. in sensational no form. Like show business, there's no business I know. <laughs> Don't miss the swinging world of Sammy Davis Jr., a full-hour entertainment special What's this it? Thursday night on ABC. I'm talking ABC? What kind of nuttiness is this? We ought to court-martial the whole sales department. What do you mean, plugging ABC? Is ABC over there plugging a the Shepherd show? Oh, that sounds ridiculous to you, huh? huh. Listen, anytime Sammy Davis can entertain you on the, on the budget we got here, I'll be a pig's ear. Uh, what do we, <laughs> what do we got? Three tap dances and his act is over. You've seen it. Uh, now, did you find out about Lord Windersme? All right, uh, we will not discuss him any longer. But I'll, I will tell you this, though. Since uh, we are, you know, being quite uh, Tom Jones-ish tonight. I don't know whether or not I will, uh, I should or not. Maybe I ought to save this story for the Limelight Show tomorrow night. I may save the saga of Chris Metropolis, which is a sordid, fetid tale. I may save the saga of Chris Metropolis for the Limelight Show. Shall I tell it tonight or shall I tell it tomorrow on the Limelight Show? Chris Metropolis was one of the truly magnificent. In fact, I would say he was a heroic burper. Uh, and uh, of course, part of part of true heroism is to know when to do it. Is to do it when it's necessary, when it's needed. You know, a lot of guys are awful fast with their fists when nothing's happening. But Metropolis knew when and how. And I sh think, should I tell that story tonight? I knew him in the army. All right, I'll tell it tonight. I think so. As a matter of fact, talking about the limelight show. Uh, speaking of pop art, uh, we'll be on immediately. Speaking of pop art, wow, the Knicks. Uh, we'll be on following the Knicks <laughs> tomorrow night on WOR. Gee, that's a tough act to follow. Uh, we'll be on uh, immediately following the Knicks. Isn't it my fault? Always, I'm always following either the Knicks or the Mets. I never follow the Yankees, you know. Uh, I'm following, uh, oh boy, will yourself, a, what was that? But uh, nevertheless, uh, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll be here tomorrow night for immediately following uh, the Knicks tomorrow night. And uh, we'll be on for till midnight there from the limelight down in the village. 
And if you'd like to come and make the scene, give him a call and ask him about a reservation. And uh, I may tell the story of Christmas. I, I think I'll tell it tonight. I'll, all right, I'll tell you. You know, it's 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 uh, any guy you've ever known who has been in the army. He will uh, ask him about this, and I think he will agree with this: that being in the army is not quite the same as being in school or college or anything like that, because uh, a college or a school s- uh, situation is fairly stasis; it's static. Uh, you get into a, a, the freshman class, and by the time you're a sophomore, uh, by the time you're edging into a junior, you know a lot of guys. You know, you know the whole crowd around you. You know, you know them pretty much, and and you, you get to feel uh, a part of a scene. You know this guy and this guy and this guy, and they're all part of the scene around you. But not the army. The army is shifting constantly, uh, so you are kind of a free-floating bit of protoplasm in this fantastic sea. And you know a couple of guys, and then they drift away. Then you know another guy, and he's gone. And then you, you may meet two or three other characters, and you may stay with them for four or five months, and then they're gone. And then finally, you get assigned to your outfit, your company. And when you're with your company, then after a certain period of time, you know practically every guy in it. But the thing about the guys you know in the company they're not people you would have picked to know in real life. The Army is not real life. Uh, you wouldn't have picked these guys. They just happen to be there, you know. And, then, and, and so you can't remember them. Even when you're looking at a guy that you've stood next to in the chow line for three years, he fades. He just fades right out because he's, uh, he's not part of your real world. He's just sort of, you know his name. And the minute he's shipped, you can't remember the guy's name. He doesn't remember your name. But there are about a half dozen guys in everybody's memory, and probably including yours, Matt, too, from the Army, a half dozen guys that you really remember. Now, they weren't necessarily your friends. They weren't necessarily guys you even knew real well. You just remember these half dozen guys. And Chris Metropolis was one guy I really remember out of the Army. Now, Chris and I never... Talked a great deal. I've just well, we did. You know, we we're very intimate, but in the army way. Uh, I'd be next to Chris in the chow line, or I'd be next to Chris in the line waiting for the shovels, or I'd be next to Chris in the grease trap, or once in a while I'd be next to Chris in the latrine and all that scene. It's always Chris. You know, Chris is there, and Goldberg is there, and, and Gasser is there, and Dunker is there. Half a dozen guys around me. You know, all these different guys. But Metropolis remained always vaguely apart from the rest of us. Because Metropolis was like no other character. Well, he's like, he was like nobody I've ever seen portrayed in an army picture, an army movie, or an army novel. You know all these hackneyed cliches they've got, all these different guys? There's always the fascistic young second lieutenant. There's always the young Jewish private who's a pacifist at heart who's going to get killed. He wants to come back and start a little delicatessen in Brooklyn, or he wants to go to university and study archaeology. We know that one. Then there's always the the, uh, the rough, tough, rotten uh, uh, corporal who's sadistic. He's from the South. He hits people. Uh, then You know, there are all these various cliches in all these Army novels, but they don't exist in the Army. They only exist in the writer's mind. He sits down and writes his whole world. He writes the war after he gets out of the war the way he wished the war would have been, you know, with all these people. He's, uh, and then he gets back. And Well, Chris did not fit any of these because Chris, first of all, was from Chicago. Have you noticed that rarely in any of the Army stories do they ever have a guy from Chicago? I don't know why this is. They always have the Southerner. 
and he's always a very good shot. And eventually, they somebody say, "I'll pick him off, Tom." And Tom picks up his rifle, and he says, Well, I've done plenty of turkey shooting in my day. He blows on the sight, you know. That's that guy. Then there's the nervous, young, sensitive, rip-torn type. Who's like, huh, I'm too young to die. I never asked for this war. Yeah, the other generation made it, and here i got to fight it. Ah, ah. You know he's going to die. See, this is, there's that guy. And uh, all these various characters. Well, here it was Metropolis. He did not fit these. Metropolis was from Chicago. And not only was he from Chicago, Metropolis was a pool shark. Uh, he was a, an accepted pool shark. That's how he earned his living before he got in the Army, Metropolis. And Metropolis was about 18 years old, something like that. He was a pool shark. He had a kind of a red face. He was, he was Greek, Chris Metropolis. And uh, another thing I have to insert here about the Army that within the army, to, to somebody outside of the army, all the uniforms look alike. Uh, it's like Chinese to most people. They all look alike, you know. Well, all the uniforms look alike, all army guys. But within the army, you can tell all the different categories of man in the same outfit. There's the sloppy guy. A sloppy guy in real life is sloppy in the army, even if he's got the same. Isn't that true, man? He's a sloppy guy. For some reason or other, his shirt sticks out just a little bit, and the edges of his collars curl up, you know. His, his cuffs are just a little bit too long. You know that scene? There's the sloppy one. Then there is the conformist. This is the guy. Everything is exactly measured according to what the book says. He bought the book immediately. He sat down and he measured everything. He polishes his buttons. He polishes his brass and his shoes are shined. But in a very square way. He's polished the way a salesman would be polished. But not the way, let's say, a 42nd Street Sharpie stuff would be polished. He's polished in a square way. There's the square, see. Then there is the hippie. Now, you wouldn't think that the hippie would have much area to work in in the Army, but the hippie does. There are so, first, first of all, he has all non-GI equipment. The first thing the hippie type does, the Sharpie, I should say, the Sharpie type, he go, yeah, he's got the tapered shirts. He has gone into the Army store, and they've tapered his shirts, and he has to be lowered into them. Uh, he always has somebody, now lower him, they, they squeak the shirt, he's a pull it down on the back. You're pulling his shirt down for him in the back, you know. And he has straps that go down around the bottom of his feet to hold his shirt down. They're absolutely drum tight, you know, drum tight. <laughs> There's the, and his coats, of course, his, his blouse is always tapered. Shoom, it goes in like that, you know, very sharp. And he has, to, he has taken a little of the padding out of the top, a whole bit. He's got it down. And you wouldn't know it unless you're in the Army. You recognize that slight difference, and they, they do it with the hats. There is a different kind of hat you get. You know, you're issued a hat in the Army. Now, the, the, the square-type guy, he wears his hat right on the top of his head, square, right in the middle, see. And he wears the one that they gave him with the braid. Now, the sloppy one, he wears it sort of back like this, on the wrong side, pulled back, turned around a little bit like that, without the braid. He doesn't get the braids. He just wears <laughs> There's that guy, see? Now, the hippie, the hippie immediately goes into town, and he goes to one of these crummy little army joints, you know, like you have down here on 42nd Street, and he buys these special army hats. These guys are the same guys that make the ruffled shirts for Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis. They make army hats, you see. They've got a special, and it's a little off color. The color of the, of the material, instead of it being the same color, it's a little darker. You know, it, it's fake officer color. 
just slightly, you know what I mean, man? And they have big peaks sticking up at the top. They have the points. They, they call them banana boat hats and the, with the banana points sticking up. <laughs> and he wears it down like this. See, he pulls it down, and you can just see the tip of his nose sticking down, a real cocky way. And they have suction cups that keep it from falling down over his ears. You know, it's hanging. It defies the law of gravity. He wears it like this, you know, kind of a snotty way. And <laughs> they have special ties, of course, the square-type guy. The square guy ties his tie in such a way that the bottom part, you know, the under part of the tie, the short end, is longer than the, than the wide end. You see, it always sticks out, and it's kind of flared out underneath, and, it, and it's dirty around the knot. You see, he uses a special carbon that makes the, the knot sort of dirty. And he, instead of tucking it into his shirt right, you see, he sort of sticks it in. And it kind of bows out, and it looks like it's a rope hanging down there, see. Now, the square guy, he uses the army tie. But the army tie he uses is very carefully pressed. It's knotted, and it's tucked in. And it's very, very, very unobtrusive. Now, the hip guy, he has gone back to 42nd Street, and he's got... <laughs> He's gotten this tie that has a vague shine to it. I don't know how he gets away with it, but it shines a little bit, see. And he is the only guy in the outfit that ties it with a Windsor knot. It's got a wide knot, you know, very sharp. It sticks down in there. And he... <laughs> You want to hear about these guys? You can also tell them by their shoes, too, by the way. Oh, invariably. Uh, you know, you're given shoes when you go in the Army. Well, immediately, the first thing that the Sharpie does, he forgets those shoes until he uses the Army shoes only during inspection. And they're shined all the time. He never puts them on any other time. Other than that, he's got low cuts that, that, <laughs> that somehow have high heels. If you can imagine, if you can imagine a guy with, a, they have high heels and they're very pointy. If you can imagine Italian shoes on an army guy, well, he gets away with this. Well, this is Chris Metropolis. Not only did Chris have that all the way down the line, he 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 stood at attention in a peculiar way. Now, Chris, when Chris was young, Chris must have had some kind of a, there must have been something wild going on in his family. He must have lived most of his time under the kitchen table, because Chris bowed his back. You know that kind of attention where the guy's gut sticks out in the front? He was bowed out in front like that. See, Chris would stand there with his shoulders back, and about every third inspection, the sergeant would go past, and he'd go, boom, hit Chris in the gut. It would go, boom, he'd hit, pull your gut in, Chris. And he would walk about three steps past Chris, and Chris would go, wah, because he'd been belted in the stomach. <laughs> Chris, Chris was a magnificent burper, just a fantastic burper. And Chris never said much. He'd sit down at the end of the barracks, and everybody's talking, and, you know, these guys are, guys are fooling around. And, and All the years I was in the Army, I think only maybe once or twice did I ever run into anybody that they always have in these movies and these, these uh, TV serials about the Army, the guy that plays the instrument. I never ran into that. This is another one of those... Uh, a wonderful TV cliches. You know the hillbilly that's sitting down there at the end singing, Oh, the Red River Valley, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love. You know those sad songs they're always singing in those army shows? Never. Never. Never never saw it. It just it never entered my army. Once in a while somebody get up and go to the day room and play the jukebox. But it just played, you know. Nobody sat around and played his harmonica or his guitar or anything like that. The only, the only thing that would happen, we'd be sitting in the barracks. The only real music that I ever actually heard come out of the army, we'd be sitting in the barracks and gas would be talking. Somebody would be 
writing letters. You know, this is Army barracks life. And other guys are going down to the PX, and another crowd has just come back from the Post Theater, and it's sort of quieting down. It's about nine, ten o'clock, and uh, they're going to blow the whistle at ten thirty, and lights out at eleven. And we're sitting there, and guys are in their underwear, and other guys are wearing fatigues, and a couple of guys just got a shirt on, and they're polishing shoes, and that's this quiet thing going along there. And it's that that army family life. It's just going on. And it's getting quieter and quieter and quieter, and people are beginning to drift off. There's always two or three guys that have been sleeping ever since you got back. They've been sleeping. They'll be sleeping when you get up. They'll be sleeping when you go to bed. They'll be sleeping tomorrow morning. They'll be sleep, probably still sleeping out there at Monmouth. They're sleeping under that blanket, you know, their head pulled down. And so that's life in the Army. Well, it would be about lights out now, and the, the bugle would blow, and then way off in the distance you'd hear taps. da 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 Silence. Silence. Way off somewhere in the distance you hear the click of pool balls. You hear the rattle of the dice in the day room. And you hear guys walking past out there in the company street clunking along at the wooden pilings out there and you hear somewhere a truck is being driven silence in the barracks five minutes go by ten minutes go by and now this, the talk is quieting down we have come to the moment that we later began to call Chris's moment it's now ten minutes after eleven eleven fifteen and now the barracks is absolutely quiet he would wait you hear some deep breathing down by the door. People are sleeping once in a while. Somebody sneezes in silence. Chris would wait. And then out of the darkness you hear... Wow! Chris is making his statement. That's it. Then there would, of course, be a round of applause depending on Chris's performance that night. Some nights he had it, other nights he didn't, you know. Some nights he was perfunctory, other nights he felt it. And when he felt it, let me tell you, Chris could rattle the windows at the B.O.Q. a half a mile away. You knew that Chris was bedding down for sleep. Wow! And then, there, 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 somebody, usually somebody would say, oh boy, that meatloaf. Or they'd say, uh-oh, cabbage. <laughs> that would be the end of the scene. Well, the only, the only time that I ever saw Chris actually use his chief weapon in combat came in one inspired moment under the unbelievable searing sun of the tropics. We had been transferred. We had a new company officer, a new exec, and then we'd been transferred again, another new company officer, another new company exec, and the entire company began to feel like orphans. You know, there's a, there, believe it or not, a company gets to have a unified personality like one man. And when they're shifted and sent around from pillar to post, they begin to feel like they're orphans. Nobody loves them, and they begin to resent everything around them. New officers, they hate them, you know. 
It's like stepfathers and stepmothers, the orphanage. They had sent our company around, and now we are standing on the hot, searing sand of an unfamiliar air base. The sun, oh boy, it was 150 degrees. We're all standing there at attention. We have been having a, a uh, an inspection now since about 1 o'clock. It's now about 2. It's 2.15. We're sweating, just covered with sweat from head to foot. All of us in our in our suntans at attention, the guy goes walking back and forth, this unfamiliar guy. And our entire company, which is about 245 guys, this little knot, and next to us is an unfamiliar company. On the right of us is another unfamiliar company. Behind us is another one. All around us is a sea of unfamiliar men. The only ones we knew were this little crowd around us. Goldberg, Gasser, Dunker, Metropolis, somewhere back in the distance there. All of us around that little... Uh, <laughs> the whole goldworm was there, too. The whole crowd were all standing there at attention and waiting back and forth. They're inspecting belt buckles. Oh, oh is it hot? You sweat and the belt buckle is sweating. And then they they'd look, each one they check. Now they're inspecting rifles. You're throwing those pieces back and forth and snap. Under the sun, this is ridiculous. We've been in the Army long enough to know this back and forth with the rifles. And now they're checking hats. They're looking at each guy's hat. Well, of course, way in the back there is our, is our resident hippie. It's Metropolis, you see, with his non-GI hat on. We knew the, we knew the boom had to fall. So he's got his hat, his cocked down over his, over his shoulder like that. And he's got his gut sticking out. We're all getting inspection. Went on and on and on and on. You hear the mumbles back in. Guys are, all right, you hear this first sergeant talking to the, to the exec. They're taking the checks down. And then the moment of silence came. CO got up there in front. He says, all right, attention. And the company comes to attention. And in front of us, the major of the battalion. Attention, battalion, attention. And way up there on that on that regimental level, there is a colonel standing up on a platform. Way up there. You remember that scene? You've seen that, Matt. Way up there, he says, oh, oh, oh. And then you hear the battalion. Oh, 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 oh. It's all around. They're calling the entire regiment to attention. Then there was a moment of profound silence. The entire regiment is standing at attention. And three men behind me, I began to hear the approaching rumble of Chris Metropolis's freight train. He was working it up. And I'm standing there hunching my shoulders. I knew it was going to come. Silence. And the back of our company commander standing, he's all sharp, you know, he's this, he's this uh, Fort Benning captain, sharp, you can see the shoulder blade sticking through his tailored suntans, he's standing there, you know, his hair is shaved all the way to the middle of his head, all the way to the top, you know, two ears sticking out like a couple of jug handles, you know, that kind of real chicken officer, oh boy, you talk about the Marines, boy, we had him, man, he's standing there with his gut, his behind pulled in, he's standing there in front of us, and next to him is his first sergeant this fire plug his exec is standing there with his shoulders back and then chris let him have it silence well that company commander i could see his shoulders going down you know just like the flag at sundown and you could hear tittering tittering all around, all around the red. And the colonel is standing up there. And you see the colonel straighten up. The 
colonel looks down over the entire regiment. Now, how can you tell? How, have you ever seen the beginning of the newsreels? Have you seen the newsreels with countless troopers marching with the helmets and the whole scene? How can you tell which one? Which one? Dead silence. But let me tell you, Company K knew which one. Not only did Company K knew which one, but a new hero was high up in our pantheon. Mickey Mantle had drilled one in the upper deck with the bases loaded, clearing the sacks and winning the pennant for our side. Our side had won again. Company K stood clean, brilliant and clear in the sunshine. It didn't make any difference where they set us, what louts they put out there in front of us, what clouds were our company commanders? Company K had Chris Metropolis. And Chris Metropolis had a lower intestine like nobody this side of Zeus. He knew exactly what he was doing. Chris was a good Greek. He knew when to loose the Thunderbolts. Wouldn't that make a fantastic episode for combat? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, now, now uh, these, these, are, these are true stories. For, for better or for worse, you, you ask me to tell you, you, you know, people keep saying, Shepard, please report on life. Well, <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, there, there was another thing. I'll never forget one time. Uh, the, the riot broke out in the latrine. Uh, you don't want to hear about that, the hot water riot? Oh, boy, let me tell you, uh, hot water is about as rare and about as valuable in the Army as radium. Uh, it really is. And, and there <laughs> it takes you about three weeks to learn that, you know, when you first get in the Army. I shaved for the first three weeks in the Army with not only cold water but ice water, absolute ice water. And I couldn't figure out why it was, you know, because they had a, a spigot on the sink that said hot. Well, I, I realized why the instant that whistle blew in the morning, you know, when they say, all right, company, dismiss. There's a fantastic uproar, gigantic stampede towards the latrine. Well, about three weeks later, uh, I got in the vanguard of that. You know, you, your knees are loose when you learn. You're in the jungle. You'll learn about this. Well, I'll never forget the time we had the hot water riot, which came about because one of the L.O.s the night before had fallen asleep and there was no hot water, not even for the regulars who always got hot water. There was a bunch of guys who were always in, in position, you know, they were like ready on the mark and they could take off like a shot. Well, that was the day. Uh, oh, and by the way, that's another thing. You hear about KP all the time, don't you? people. That's a big thing. KP, you know, they always write stories and funny bits about KP. Did you ever hear the L.O.? Well, the L.O. is even the worst job, and in some ways far more laughable than KP. It's a lonely job. The L.O. is latrine orderly. Now, what does the latrine orderly do? Well, uh, now that's, that's hard to describe. I, I uh, No, it, it really is. It's difficult because, of course, we do have women and children with us here. Uh, but I'll tell you one of the things that the latrine orderly really has to do. There's no question about it. This is the one thing that he's required. He's absolutely, he's got to have hot water. 
Now, outside of every latrine, they have, the latrine is a building, you see. Now, now, for those of you who don't know what the latrine is, well, it's, it's a... Well, it's a... Uh, <laughs> it's a... Well, it's a, it's a, it's a big restroom, uh, but it's a very big one. And not only very big, it, it, has, uh, it has a strange way of arranging its, uh, its appliances, a very strange way. I'll, I'll, some night when we're, we're alone, we'll talk to you about that. But one end of it is a, is a, is a collection of sinks. All up against the wall are sinks, and above each sink is a mirror. Now, these sinks are spotless and white absolutely spotless and white and it is the job of the latrine orderly every night as he comes in he usually comes on in the evening latrine orderly his job is to go down from one end of the one end of the row of sinks to the other with a brush with some bonami some uh, bonami they always use in the army did you know that some gi soap some brillo pads and he goes to work the brass all the way down again all right she runs the water. Now it's clean, see? Now he gets underneath and he scrunches down the whole length of it and polishes the pipes. they got copper pipes, you see, polishes the pipes all the way down. Now he's got the sinks. Then he goes into the next room and takes care of the other appliances. Now, that's another story. He takes care of all those appliances, polishes them all the way down, see? And then he starts on the floor the whole scene. He slops the water and he puts the soap. All night he's going on. See, I've done this many a time. Soap and water. you got the big brush. You put a little sign out, closed. The latrine is closed while you're working. You know, you've seen that. You know, they have to go to the next company. He's washing it down, washing it down. And now it's about 3 o'clock in the morning. He's got those mirrors polished. And he goes out around the side and they have this... <laughs> They have this hot water heater. You turn the hot water heater on, you shovel the coal in the thing, you know, and you get the fire going. You watch the steam and you watch the pressure. And now you've got about 45 gallons of hot water, which is the total tankful. It's boiling and bubbling. Oh, man, boy, you feel like you're really running a Todd ship. What a fantastic moment. Your John is clean. Gee, it looks beautiful. You walk back and forth and you can see your you can just see your faces right there. You can see your you can see your face reflected back at you right from the pot. You know, you look down beautiful, beautiful, back and forth. It is now four o'clock. And once in a while a, a KP will wander in and say, Get out of there! Come on, Mac! You walk after each guy, you know. Each guy comes in one by one, you know, you walk. And then it is now 5-10 and Reveille. Boom! 45,000 guys come in. Ah, oh, the water. No hot water. It's all gone already. Soap wrappers, cigar wrappers, cigar butts. Oh, boy, I can't even describe to you what happens to the Florida latrine. From one end to the other, guys are yelling and hollering. You're staying but No, fellas, stop it, stop it, stop it. Stuff is on the mirrors. It's on the floor. Guys are yelling. There's washcloths, tennis shoes, and the whole scene. And it, they run out. And you are left with your mop, your babo, your bonami, and you start all over again. You begin to know something about the human race. Yes, indeed. You begin to have a firm grasp on reality after about four or five sessions of latrine orderly. You know what the world is all about. And you understand Lord Windesmere a little better. <laughs> <laughs>